0: Again, That video is a strong statement from someone who has decided without question that they're taking a stand for Christ, isn't it? And that's the subject of our message today. If you were here last week, you know that we started a new sermon series entitled The Journey, where we're walking through the life of Moses as it parallels in many ways the life of every believer and the choices that we're all confronted with at different times in our lives. Moses, as so many of the Old Testament characters were, was certainly a Christ figure, but the record that we have of his life is also a really excellent study of the progression of some of the major intersections that we all come to as believers throughout this life, the the journey that we're all on. And so we're going to continue this series today as we embark on our second installment of the journey, examining the life of Moses, looking at not only the, the big events that we've heard about since we were kids in Sunday school, for those of you that grew up in church, but some of the not-so-big events that I believe still hold very relevant meaning for our lives today, just as they did for Moses then. Okay, Last week we started the journey talking about salvation. We know that Moses was saved, of course, as a baby, just as we all need to be saved in our lives. In fact, he was saved three times from the the time of his birth until he was three months old. We looked at the fact that without God's intervention, Moses' life was doomed. It was hopeless. Without God's intervention, Moses would never have been saved at all. And the same is true for us. And then finally, we finished last week with the understanding that everything that God did in Moses' life was all planned out long before he was even born. And so it is with us. that, That God has a plan for each of us and so invested... In that plan is the Lord that He has had it all mapped out and provided for since long before we were even born. That that was the case with Moses. And as we read in Psalm 139, 13 through 16 at the end, the same is true for us. You see, God has this life, our lives, all figured out and, and worked out and provided for. So we don't have to carry that entire burden of having everything, you know, every detail all of our future worked out in our lives. All that we need do is be obedient to what he tells us to do next. And then he takes care of all those details. That doesn't, doesn't mean, of course, that we don't plan or prepare or provide. It means that we don't fret. We don't get ahead of God. And we don't hoard our resources because we're consumed by fear over the uncertainty of our future. And the questions like, how's that going to work? Or what's going to happen next? Where will the money come from? What if I'm not adequate for the job? You know, all those questions that we confront when we begin to walk the path that God has laid out in front of us. He takes care of all that. And he's, he's had all that figured out long before it even happens. And again, that's what we saw in Moses' life. And that's what we covered last week in Exodus 1 and 2 up through verse 10. And so today... Let's continue this journey and talk about the next milestone in Moses' life, which is the moment that he decided to take a stand. This was a a profound moment in his life that was inextricably linked to everything else that he did and accomplished after that day. And so it is with each of us, as we'll see, when we take a stand for Christ. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we'll have it on the screen also. And we'll start on verse 11, where we left off last week. And just to paint the picture, Moses has at this point in his life been raised in Pharaoh's court. Okay, he's 40 years old, in the prime of his life, and he's living the dream. I mean, this guy's like a rock star. He's got fortune, he's got fame, he's got money. Moses has it made. He has the best education that you could get in the world at that time. And members of the royal court in in that time in Pharaoh's court, if you weren't in direct line of succession to the throne, you were put into the diplomatic corps as a diplomat to other nations, and you were trained militarily. So he's had an incredible education. So at this point in Moses' life, why rock the boat? Why change anything at this point? He can have anything he wants materially. He can do anything he wants to do. He can raise a nice family in comfort. He could provide for his family. He could give them anything that they want. The best education. The best standard of living. The best of everything. Why mess all of that up? Why chuck everything that you've been blessed with for a life of toil and hardship? I can tell you, that I don't believe that Moses could have even answered those questions at this point in his life. I don't believe that he was probably thinking that far ahead and he certainly didn't know the path that the rest of his life was going to take at that moment. All All that he knew was that at that moment it was time for him to take a stand. Okay, so let's read Exodus 2 starting on verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Okay, so at this point we know that Moses was 40 years old because Stephen tells us as much in Acts 7.23. And he's addressing the priests and the people in the synagogue. And Stephen is. And he, and he tells us in the previous verse, in Acts 22, that Moses had received the finest education during his upbringing in Egypt. And that he was very influential, even among the Egyptians. And interestingly enough, despite his adopted pedigree, his education and influence in this very comfortable life, he obviously knew, Moses knew, that he was a Hebrew. And he identified with the Hebrew people by the way that he describes the Hebrews at the end of this verse we just read. He calls them his people. And that word in the, in the original Hebrew, people, could also mean brothers. So he's saying these are my brothers. So we find Moses now a grown man, having been raised in all things Egyptian, identifying himself with the lowliest slaves, the most reviled, abused, poor, disrespected people group in the country. Okay, let's continue. We have Moses now watching this Egyptian beating this Hebrew, and he responds in in verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Some scholars have questioned whether or not what Moses did here was wrong in God's eyes, because we never see a direct rebuke from God over this incident. But regardless of how you feel on that matter, Moses definitely knew that he could get in big trouble here, right? Because first of all, he looked around to see if anyone was watching. You wouldn't bother to do that if you were unconcerned about what you were getting ready to do. And then it says he buried the, the guy's body he just killed in the sand. So he's obviously trying to cover up the crime for the sake of the Egyptian people and Pharaoh, if not for God. And yet, despite all these precautions he apparently isn't too worried after the fact or feeling too bad about it because of what he does the next day verse 13 when he went out the next day behold two hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong why do you strike your companion he answered who made you a prince and judge over us do you mean to kill me as you killed the egyptian then moses was afraid and thought surely the thing is known Okay, So he goes out the next day, right after killing the Egyptian and burying his body in the sand, and he's apparently feeling pretty good about himself. He, he successfully defended one of his own people, right? And, and here comes round two. Moses is probably now starting to see himself as the protector of his people. He's taken on this mantle as he approaches these two Hebrews who are kind of throwing down on each other, and he decides to intervene. And there's an interesting side note here that Moses was probably starting to view himself as like the guardian protector of the Hebrews and of course we know that ultimately that's exactly the role that God had for Moses to play except that Moses was trying to accomplish God's purposes whether he knew that's what he was doing or not by his own plan by his own strength instead of relying on God's plan and God's strength, as we'll see. And so even though Moses may well have been playing the part that God had intended, he wasn't necessarily doing it in the way that God intended. And the reality of that is that it backfired in Moses' face. Okay? We'll continue with verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So... Moses' plan to wield his influence and authority to establish himself as the Hebrew protector falls apart pretty quickly. Why? It's what we just said. Because Moses was trying to do this based on his own wisdom and his own abilities instead of waiting on God's timing and following God's wisdom and relying on God's strength. Does any of this sound familiar to anyone other than me? There have been times in my own life, and the the lives certainly of others that I've known and counseled over the years, where we've tried to use our own skills and abilities and talents to accomplish noble deeds. There have been times when I thought I know exactly what I've been created for, and so I'm going to make this happen. But instead of seeking God on the matter and following His voice and His timetable and His plan and relying on His strength, I tried it on my own. And even though I may have had a a good idea, it might have been a solid plan, plenty of talent, and the ability to accomplish the goal with all good intentions, it wasn't God's idea. It wasn't His plan. And I wasn't relying on His wisdom and strength. And ultimately, just like Moses, it it falls apart. We say it all the time in church, but it's true. Don't get ahead of God. Moses was trying to defend his people, God's people, Seemed like a good plan. Except for the fact that God already had a plan. And although it was to accomplish the very same end, Moses as defender and leader and judge over the Hebrew people, it was to be accomplished in a way that Moses could never have dreamed. Isaiah 55.9, the Lord says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's quite a separation there isn't there? The heavens and the earth, his thoughts and our thoughts, okay? We have to yield, submit all of our plans and thoughts and dreams to God before we act and make sure that it's his way and not our way. That is the path to success. It's not growing up in Pharaoh's court. It's not in the American dream. It's not even in our own self-contrived plans to to do good it is in and only in the obedient following of God and the plans that he has for us and as we learned last week those plans for us were laid out long before we were even born okay Moses as we'll see is in the process of learning this as well but without question it is a process And it's very much a part of the journey. So Moses is reeling now, okay, from his failed plans. He's thinking about, uh, at this point, all he can think about is getting out of town. So he flees Egypt in fear for his life. And he treks across the Sinai Peninsula to the land of Midian. Midian was the son of Abraham and one of his concubines, Keturah. And uh, his descendants, the Midianites, settled in this territory east of the Jordan River and southward through the desert wilderness, wilderness toward uh, Ereba. And we don't know the exact route that Moses took, but it's easily three, 400 plus miles. Okay? That doesn't seem like much by today's standards you know, cruising in the minivan on the interstate. But trekking on foot through rugged terrain for hundreds of miles without a Walmart while potentially being pursued by bad guys has to make for a really long and arduous journey, right? But finally Moses makes a stop at Midian for a rest and a drink of water. He was probably intending on going further. But either way, clearly Moses wasn't planning on going back to Egypt, you know, on the weekends for a visit was he? He was never going back. He was, he was going to find an entirely different life for himself. He had sort of officially transitioned to plan B, okay? And that's where he is right now. So let's keep reading. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, this is later, he's referred to as Jethro, same guy. He said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? (laughs) Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in the foreign land. And Gershom sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner. And that's where that comes from. Okay? So Moses sits down by this well, and he ends up meeting his future wife. Interestingly enough, both Isaac, through Abraham's servant, and Jacob, both met their future wives at a well. So if there are any single young men here today and you're thinking about your future mate, maybe you should just go find a well and sit down and wait. That may not be the fastest way to find a wife, but it's probably safer than the internet. So that's just some free premarital counseling thoughts for all of you young guys. Okay, Moses meets a girl. He gets married, has a family, finds a great job in the family business, and he settles down family, job, great location. For the next 40 years, he lives out what most would consider to be the back half of their life. Right From 40 to 80 years old, Moses has reinvented himself, living and working in Midian, and by all accounts, has spent what he probably thinks are the last years of his life in complete contrast to the first 40 years. And he probably had no idea that all of this was in preparation for what God was going to do yet through him. Okay, the first 40 years, he was a rock star. He was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, but he was also learning right there in Pharaoh's court how to lead a nation. He couldn't have had a better education in how to lead people than to grow up in Pharaoh's court. The next 40 years, he led an entirely different lifestyle, the hardworking existence of a shepherd, still a leader, but from a completely different perspective. The first 40 years, Moses was getting a formal education. Politics, religion, geography, astronomy, military, finances, how to manage governmental structures. He was going to need all of that later as he led the nation of Israel. The next 40 years, he was getting an education in humility, family, servanthood, and how to lead sheep. He was going to need all that later as he led the nation of Israel as well. There's no way Moses could have ever devised such a brilliant training program for what was to come in his life. But God knew exactly what Moses needed and he had it all mapped out ahead of time. Okay. It certainly must not have felt like he was being prepared for something great at the time. He went from royalty to obscurity, from prince to sheep herder, and now he's 80 years old. Realistically, what is left for him to do? Have you ever felt like that? You know, my life hasn't really panned out the way I thought it would, or you know, things really turned out differently than I had planned. I've had those moments. But the truth is, we don't have any idea what God has planned. And we have to be okay with that. Because we never really know. We never really do know what he's going to do next in our lives. Just as Moses was about to find out. Listen to me. Don't ever put an expiration date on your ability to be used by God. Don't ever put an expiration date on your ability to be used by God because no matter how great or how insignificant your life and ministry may seem to you up up to this point, regardless of your age or your background or your experience or your resources, for all you know, God hasn't even begun to use you yet in ways that you could never imagine. For all you know up to this point, everything has simply been training and preparation for whatever it is that's coming next. We should never lose our sense of excitement and expectation when it comes to God's plan for our lives. I'll I'll say that again. We should never lose our sense of excitement and expectation when it comes to God's plan for our lives because we don't know what's coming next, and neither did Moses. What did come next for Moses is the subject matter for the weeks to come in this study we're on. But for today, let's go ahead and finish this portion of our text, and then we're going to talk about Moses' stand, okay? So verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I believe that the most significant part of these last three verses is the last two words. God knew. Every cry, every hurt, every hardship, no matter how big or small, God knows. He sees us, and He hears us. So when you're struggling and you feel like no one understands and no one else can relate to what you're going through, it's very important to realize that God knows all about that. And He has a plan, and He's firmly in control. That doesn't mean that there won't be hardship or even suffering. The Israelites suffered great hardship for a few hundred years before they were delivered. It it means that God isn't unaware or even uncaring he knows our plight better than we do, and He's in control, and He has a plan. And you win at the end. You've got to remember that. Someone was asking me just the other day, and it's a common question I get, about the passage that says, God won't give us more than we can handle. That's a reference to 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is one of those scriptures that's been tossed around in church for years by pastors mainly, and it's been a bit distorted by our common usage of it, to be honest, which is really, it's a bit misleading. This verse is not saying that we will never face too much hardship. It's not what it says. It's saying that we will never be left in any situation in our lives where our only option is to sin. God always provides a way out of every situation that doesn't involve us giving in to sin. The truth is the Bible promises us much hardship in this life. But the other part of that promise is that in our frailty, in our own weakness, His strength is perfected in us. So we're guaranteed some suffering, sure, in this life, but He also guarantees that His grace is sufficient for us to endure, and in that we become more like Christ. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12.9. Okay, so again, when you're struggling, it's really important to remember that, number one, God knows your struggle, and He's in control, and He has a plan, and number two, His grace is sufficient to see you through that struggle, okay? Now, we just worked through our text, verse, verse by verse, which is important to do before we get down to any particular topic that might f- focus on for the day. Because we now have a good working understanding of this text and how it applies to our topic at hand. So we're going to use the next few minutes, the remainder of our time today, to go back. And we're just going to quickly talk about the stand that Moses took that forever altered the course of his life. All right, This was a profoundly pivotal moment for Moses. In verse 12, when he decided to take a stand for the Hebrew people. And we've already talked about the fact that he was ahead of God, right? He sort of took the reins, if you will, and tried to make happen what he thought was the best course of action instead of allowing God to lead him into his destiny. But regardless of how we feel about the way that he expressed this resolution in his life to defend his people, his brothers, the fact is, on that fateful day, Moses took a stand there's some really relevant points to be made here in regard to our own lives. And the first is that in every believer's life, there comes a moment when we all have to choose to stand. Okay, Uh, We can choose not to stand, to be clear. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I believe that every single believer has a moment, or often many moments, when we have to choose to take a stand for Christ if we are to realize His ultimate purpose for our lives. Just as Moses was compelled to stand for God's people, you see, he couldn't bear to be silent and idly do nothing any longer. He couldn't bear it, so he took a stand. And we must all do the same. There is no version of this life where we can simply coast through never having to make any tough decisions for God, never having to take a stand in the face of ridicule or persecution or even loss and come out as a great champion for Christ. That just isn't a reality. Every single character in the Bible that achieved great accomplishment for God. Every single one of them that lived a life worth writing about, a life that could be used to teach millions of people after them, every single one of them at one point or another had to take a stand for God. Noah, Abraham, think about it, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Rahab, Ruth, Elijah, Daniel, the disciples, the Apostle Paul. We don't have time to name them all. But what they all had in common is that every one of them took a stand for God and every one of them was a world changer. We simply cannot expect to have any great effect on this world for Christ if we're not willing to take a stand for Him when that moment arrives. And it will arrive. God always allows us to test our spiritual metal in this world. He will always give us the opportunity to prove out our faithfulness. The responsibilities we're given, the ministry that we're entrusted with, the effectiveness that we have in all of that will largely depend upon our response in those times of testing. Okay? If Noah hadn't built the ark, if Abraham hadn't offered Isaac to be sacrificed. If, if Paul hadn't responded to the voice of the Lord on the road to Damascus, the world might look very different right now. I want to live a life worth writing about. Don't you? Don't you want to make a difference? I do. I, and that's going to mean that we have to take a stand for Christ. Okay. Another parallel I'll move through these quickly that we can draw from Moses' decision to stand for God in the, in the interest of full disclosure. I'll tell you without question, any time and every time you take a stand for Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you something. There are always consequences to standing up for Christ. Moses' stand cost him everything. Money, position, power, comfort, influence. and As far as he knew, his, his future He was a desperate man on the run. Anytime we take a stand for Christ, it's going to cost us something. We we might be laughed at, disrespected, talked about, looked down upon. We might lose our job, friends, position, influence. We might have to give up material things, money, possessions. There's always a cost associated with taking a stand for Christ and for righteousness. And the time to reconcile that truth is before you're in a difficult situation where you have to choose whether or not to take that stand. In other words, don't wait until you're there facing those really tough circumstances that require you to choose the easy path or the Jesus path, which is rarely to never the easy way. Don't wait until you've reached that crossroads before you take your stand for Christ. It's much more difficult in the heat of the moment to have to decide whether or not you're going to stand. Okay? When, you, when you decide well in advance, right from the get-go, that no matter what comes your way, come hell or high water, that you're going to take a firm stand for Jesus Christ. There won't be any deliberation on the matter when you come to that place of making that tough decision because the decision has already been made. In the words of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, at the point of crisis or hardship, you're ready to stand for Christ without having to weigh your options because you've already weighed them in light of Scripture and the testimony of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and the fact that He's proven Himself faithful in your life over and over again. There's nothing left to discuss. There's nothing to talk about. There's no waffling and there is no argument because you've already decided to put the world on notice that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you don't stand up for Christ in the good times, you'll rarely stand for Him in difficult times. So yes, there are consequences to standing for Christ. But once the decision is made, that commitment will begin to manifest itself all throughout your life. Go back to Moses as our example. Once he decided to take a stand, it became a pattern in his life. He he decided to take a stand and he struck down the Egyptian. And then what? What? The next day he took another stand with the two Hebrews. And then what? After after having to give up everything that he had and literally run for his life, the guy stops to take a break and get a drink. Right in the midst of his escape from Egypt, in the heat of running for his life, he's confronted with another opportunity to take a stand. Jethro's daughters show up at the well to water their flocks and these shepherds run them off. Now, think about that for a minute. Put yourself in his shoes. How easy would it have been for Moses to not take a stand at that moment in his life? He's already running for his own life because the last time he decided to take a stand. At this point, what possible reason could he have for willingly taking on any more trouble in his life? Why in the world would you do that to yourself? In his situation, it's because he'd already decided. Moses had had enough of the innocent being oppressed, of the weak being overtaken by the strong, of the utter disregard for human life by those who would seek to dominate their lesser neighbors. He'd had enough, and he'd made a decision, and it began to show up in every part of his life. Once he made that decision, it showed up in every part of his life. And what did he do? He he runs the shepherds off. And he defends these women who otherwise had no hope of defending themselves. Once again, Moses takes a stand. We all have to make that choice at some point. We all have to take a stand and to be sure there will be consequences. But we all want our lives to count for something greater than ourselves, right? Well, here's the secret. The only way that we will ever reach our maximum potential in this life. The only way to live a life totally fulfilled is to take a stand for Christ. Moses could have easily decided not to stir up any trouble. He could have turned a blind eye to the injustices being done to his own people. He could have easily just lived out his life in comfort and security. Why rock the boat? He's, he's living the dream, baby. Why rock the boat? Well, He rocked the boat. He took a stand because he knew that there were more important causes in this world than protecting his own wealth and security. He valued the well-being of other people more than he valued his own life. Who does that remind you of? Someone else we read about in this book, of course, Jesus himself. And this is how we're all instructed to live, to take a stand for Christ and for others, even at the expense of our own wealth and prosperity and security. What would have happened if Moses had decided to play it cool? Stay in Egypt, not make any waves. He probably would have lived out his life in total comfort, with untold wealth, a nice family, everything he could ever want materially, and in complete obscurity. Instead, Moses chose the hard road, the road less traveled. But if he could do it all over again, which road do you think he'd choose? I have no doubt that he would choose the same path every time. Why? Why? Was it a life filled with material riches? Comfort? Did he have any security? Predictability? Not even close. But it was a life filled with purpose. Adventure. Deep meaning. It was a life that forever changed the world and it was anything but mediocre. He lived a life of destiny, an intense fulfillment that was only because he was willing to make a stand. You know, we talk about fulfillment all the time in church, and I was thinking about that. What does that really mean? Well, here's the RIV version. That stands for Rucci Inspired Version. <laughs> Fulfillment, being truly fulfilled, means waking up every morning and knowing that you are doing exactly what it is you were created to do. That is a fulfilled life. That is fulfillment. And I don't believe that it's possible to live a truly fulfilled life when we refuse to stand for Christ. Why do I say that? Because of what we see in Scripture. What happens when we decide not to take a stand? And I'm finishing. We see it in in Mark chapter 10. A man that was described as a rich young ruler came up to Jesus and he asked him what he had to do to have eternal life. And this guy was in many ways a modern version of Moses in his early years. He was rich. Moses was rich. He was young. Moses was young. He was a ruler. Moses was a member of the ruling family and probably ruled some segment of society. And as we see in the Gospel of Mark, the rich young ruler identified with the Hebrew people and God's law. Moses identified with the Hebrew people and received God's law. So in a lot of ways, the rich young ruler and Moses were, were much alike. And yet one decision divides the outcome of their lives for all of eternity. One chose to take a stand And one didn't. As we read in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler runs up to Jesus. He gets down on his knees and he asks him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This wasn't a casual encounter. We're talking about someone with a sense of urgency and passion about the matter. He runs up to Jesus and it says he gets down on his knees and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus very clearly spells it out for him. He says keep the commandments in other words obey God and follow his will that isn't necessarily easy by the way but it's very simple and how did the rich young ruler respond Mark 10 verse 20 and he said to him teacher all these I've kept from my youth and Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me In other words, take a stand. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. One of the saddest commentaries in Scripture. He went away sorrowful because his possessions meant more to him than following Christ. He refused to take a stand to sacrifice anything and everything that was dearer to him than Jesus. All it took was one thing. His possessions... And he wasn't willing to give them up for Christ. And what happened? When he refused to take a stand, he went away sorrowful. He went away unfulfilled. All it takes is one thing. It just takes one thing. For Judas, it was money. He stood for money instead of Christ. And the life that he could have had serving Christ went unfulfilled. And it ended in tragedy. For Samson it was an unhealthy relationship. He refused to stand for righteousness and instead he gives in to these unhealthy desires and what happened? The life that he could have lived out went unfulfilled and ended in tragedy although God used him in the end. For Saul it was recognition. He was offended that David was getting more attention than him and instead of standing for righteousness instead of taking a stand for God he gave in to his lust for recognition and what happened? His life went unfulfilled and it ended in tragedy for Adam and Eve it was power instead of taking a stand for their creator they gave into the idea of somehow being equal with God and what happened? the lives they could have had went unfulfilled and instead they brought toil and sin and death into the world they brought tragedy into the world possessions money relationships recognition power it only takes one thing is there one thing? Maybe there's more than one thing that you hold dear even more than Jesus Christ. I don't know. Maybe it's a bank account. Maybe it's a relationship with someone other than Christ. Maybe it's a possession. Maybe it's your career. Whatever it is, if there is even one thing that you hold dearer in your life than Jesus, it's one thing too many. Now, Please don't leave here today and say that Pastor Rob said, I'm supposed to quit my job, give away my house, drain my bank account, leave my wife, and go on the mission field in Africa. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if your marriage relationship is taking precedence over your relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to give your marriage to God. What does that mean? It means that you make Jesus Christ the center of your marriage. You consult Him together first on all matters. You make decisions together based on what he wants and what he says is right according to what his word says not what the world says. You make him the focus of your marriage first and then each other. It doesn't mean quitting your job necessarily, although it could mean that, but at the very least it means making him the focus of your career. When you do that your career will become your ministry. It doesn't mean getting rid of all your stuff, although it it could mean that. If he tells you to do that, that's what he told the rich young ruler to, to do. But at the very least, it means giving it all to him and letting him use it however he chooses. You know, when you do that, you'll find that your home might become a ministry center for hurting people, hurting neighbors, a place where you offer them the love of Christ over a meal, or simply a safe place to come and share their hearts, a place where God uses you to lead others to him doesn't mean getting rid of your savings account and selling all your stocks unless that's what he tells you to do but at the very least it means giving him all control over your finances. When you do that you will find yourself spending money on different things than you used to. Because when you take a stand for Christ everything in your life every aspect of your life becomes about him and how you can serve and honor him. You see, in our weakness, He's what? He's made strong. In His Gospel, John said, He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3.30 Taking a stand for Christ means giving up ourselves for His sake. When we do that, we no longer have to try and create this fulfilling life for ourselves because He provides that for us as we serve Him. I want to stand for Jesus Christ in my life every aspect of my life. I, I want to stand for Him. Surely I'm going to fall short of that goal at times. You know those times when I try to fit just a little bit more of me and a little less of Him into the equation. But I find myself recommitting to that path often the further down this road that I go. And I find myself increasingly facing situations in my own life, in society, in my relationships, and in my preferences, and my habits, and my routines, I find myself having to answer the question that he seems to be continually asking me. Will you take a stand for me? And I believe that's the question that he's asking all of us today. Will you take a stand for Jesus Christ in your home, in your marriage, in your job, with your possessions, with your money, with every aspect of your life, Will you stand for Jesus Christ? If you would answer yes to that question today, I want to ask you to stand with me now, and we'll close in prayer.